Hello and welcome to No Character Limit. My name is Robert Thurk, and today I'm going to share with you a short little writing piece I wrote called The Forging of Humanity. In it, I talk about humanity's deep connection and relationship to fire. I think that we have become so used to and dependent on fire in our everyday lives that we truly do not understand how deeply connected we are to the phenomenon. So, hopefully, after listening today, you'll gain a little bit of a deeper appreciation to our relationship to fire. If you would like to read The Foraging of Humanity, please feel free to donate. For any donation you give, I will provide you with a PDF copy of the book that I wrote. It is something that I took a lot of time to do, and the one thing that you don't get to have when you listen to the podcast is you don't get to see all the pictures I took a lot of time to pick out and it really does supplement the story pretty well. However, I talk about all the same things on here as I do in the book, so if you just like to listen, please sit back, relax, and enjoy The Forging of Humanity. first section of the forging of humanity is called the ghosts of the flames and what i'd like you to do is to just kind of imagine yourself on a nice cool summer or fall evening with a fire that everybody's sitting around and it's dark out and maybe you're talking laughing maybe making some s'mores and I want you to understand how easily it is for humans to bond around a fire. It's so natural. People generally tend to open up, tell stories, and have good conversation around a fire. There's something about fire that draws that out of us. And it's because fire and sitting around one, that is a universal human experience. Whether you did it today, whether people were doing it 100 years ago, 1,000 years ago, or even 100,000 years ago, the human race has always sat around a fire and bonded with each other. There's something mesmerizing about it, all right? It can captivate us. And when you sit there and maybe it's getting a little later in the evening and the conversation begins to die down, you look into the fire and you find that you're just looking into the embers and the flames dancing and you see the different shapes and maybe you see faces and the coals that are glowing deep in the fire and you find that your mind begins to reflect what you're looking at in the fire because thoughts kind of come and go and pop up and come to the forefront and disappear again just kind of like how fire is dancing in front of your eyes. You have all these different emotions that are going through your mind, whether it's nostalgia, love, sadness, bitterness. 
anything can come up, even thoughts you haven't thought about and memories you haven't had for a long time can just pop into your head, float there for a moment, and nothing held too tightly. It just kind of flashes by your mind's eye and disappears again. And suddenly somebody will say something and you'll get snapped right out of the trance that the fire has put you in, almost like a dream how it disappears almost as soon as you wake up and you're back to having a conversation, almost forgetting how the fire can draw you in like that. This captivating nature of fire is something that I tried to find a quote about, and it was actually harder than you might think. But I ultimately landed on one from Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury, which is a book that has a central theme about fire. And the quote comes from one of the antagonists named Captain Beatty. And I'll share it with you here. Captain Beatty says, What is there about fire that's so lovely? No matter what age we are, what draws us to it? Beatty blew out the flame and lit it again. It's perpetual motion, the thing man wanted to invent but never did. Or almost perpetual motion. If you let it go on, it'd burn our lifetimes out. What is fire? It's a mystery. Scientists give us gobbledygook about friction and molecules, but they don't really know. Its real beauty is that it destroys responsibility and consequences. The reason why I like this quote is that first it talks about that perpetual motion aspect of fire, the constant changing that I think is what can draw us in and captivate us about fire. In this way, it's a lot like water, just like we can get captivated by the waves rolling in from the ocean and the constant motion of water. But Beattie also has this little bit deeper insight about fire too, and explains that it's almost perpetual motion because if you let it go on, it would burn our lifetimes out. Unlike the ocean waves, fire will come to an end because it has to consume to continue moving. And once it runs out of fuel, it will no longer continue to move. And I think this is best illustrated by fire's role in the relationship of the life cycle of a forest. There is a great documentary out there called Borealis that really goes into the role a forest fire plays in old growth forests uh, using the boreal forest in the Arctic Circle as an example. The boreal forest is the forest that stretches across both uh, Siberia and northern Canada. It's the largest unbroken stretch of forest in the world. Um, in Siberia, they often call it the taiga. But fire plays an integral role to these forests uh, and, and their life cycles. Because as forests grow up and... The trees get so high that they choke out all the light from the ground. It becomes a monoculture. And this monoculture means that nothing else can grow there. And anything that's on the ground tends to just be dried and dead leaves and needles. And essentially, it's a tinderbox waiting to ignite. 
And then whether it is an accidental fire that a human had started that goes out of control, or more likely, which is a spark of a lightning strike, a fire does ignite and it consumes the entire forest until it runs into a natural barrier or the rain finally cools it down. And what's left is nothing like the old forest that had been there. But these trees have evolved to know that they will be destroyed by fire because they create seeds that are basically fireproof. And as soon as the sunlight is now hitting the floor that it hadn't reached for so long, all sorts of plants begin racing to become the new leaders in the area, whether it's flowers, bushes, fields, saplings. And before you know it, within only a few years, the entire area not only doesn't look burned down anymore, but all the plants in the area have used the burned down wood as nutrients to grow an entirely new ecosystem that is in its place. Then once again, some trees win out, others lose, and ultimately you end up with another old growth forest. Old, not allowing for any sort of other competition, another monoculture, ready to light the whole thing on fire. There's a lot of symbolism here in the life cycle of a forest. When I think of monocultures and society that don't allow for competition, we see the seeds of a revolution. It reminds me a little bit of the symbol of a phoenix, right? That rises from its own ashes. And I also think of the Hindu god Shiva, which is the god of destruction but also of creation, because through destruction, just like in a forest fire, there is creation of new things. And it's this role that fire plays. It's dual nature, where it has this beauty and captivating aspect to it, something that brings us together. And yet it has this ugly, destructive side as well that really makes fire totally unique and something that Captain Beatty talks about in his quote about fire. And this is what brings me to my next section. The Spark of Wildfire one thing that I think is important to understand about the human relationship to fire is that we did not invent fire any more than we discovered it. I've heard both of those terms used to describe humans' initial relationship with fire, but the reality is, is that humans, for as long as we've been around, have always had a deeply interconnected relationship with fire, and we've always known about it and fire has been around long before humans have. Even human ancestors have had a deep and complicated relationship with fire. And this makes us an entirely unique species across the animal kingdom, because nearly all other animals are repelled by fire. And despite us as humans also being animals, we not only will approach fire, 
but we will attempt to tame fire. But this taming that we have done of fire is not quite like the process of domestication that we're so used to when thinking of, for example, how humans have turned wolves into dogs. Because with dogs, we can develop a sort of trust relationship with them. But with fire, there can be no trust. And so in this way, our relationship with fire is mostly a master and slave type relationship, where one has 100% of the power and the other has none, because there is no way that we can build a bridge of trust with fire. When humans are the master, we use it to benefit us in all sorts of ways. It cooks our food, it gives us light, gives us warmth, but if we take our eyes off of it for even just a moment, suddenly we can become the slave and the fire becomes the master. When fire stops playing by our rules and gets out of control, we have a special name for it. We call it wildfire. Wildfire will then consume and destroy, just like Captain Beatty says, until it takes everything around it. It does not care for what we love or our protection. It has become the master. Throughout history, wildfire has attempted to take control at certain points. For example, in the first century Rome, Fire escaped a line of shops along a chariot stadium and engulfed and destroyed nearly the entire heart of the city. In 1666, a fire spread across London, destroying over 13,000 homes, dozens of churches, including the famous St. Paul's Cathedral. In 1871, a cow that kicked over a lamp ended up creating the Great Chicago Fire, destroying 17,000 buildings in just over 24 hours. In that same year, north of Chicago, the Great Michigan Fire of 1871 destroyed over 2.5 million acres of Michigan and Wisconsin forests, much like that natural life cycle of the forests that we just discussed. Even today, there are 4.5 million American homes that are located in an area that are deemed either high or in an extreme risk of being destroyed by wildfire. Over 50,000 wildfires occur each year in the United States, which goes to show how quickly we can go from being the masters to being the slaves of wildfire. This relationship that humans have built with fire have made me interested in trying to understand our psychology around fire and how we were able to overcome that irrational fear that all other animals were not. The Foresight of the Flames One place I decided to look to get a deeper understanding of the human psychological connection to fire 
is Greek mythology. Greek myths are some of the oldest surviving myths on the planet, and I thought they could help provide insight into how people thought about fire thousands of years ago. But before I talk about the myths themselves, I think there's a few things that are important to keep in mind. First, we have to remember that myths are not historically accurate. They're used by the people of the time to explain the unknown, and while they can help us today provide some insight into how these people thought, we have to remember not to take these stories too literally. Another thing to keep in mind is that the culture and the language where these myths originated are several cultures and languages removed from me as an American in the 21st century, which means it's not only possible but likely that I could make some misinterpretations here. Just the translations alone could lead to misinterpretations, so it's important to not hold on to anything I say here too tightly. Finally, there are several different versions of these myths that have survived, and depending on which version you pay attention to, you can come away with a vastly different lesson that's supposed to be learned from the myth. Even if you look at the same version, this problem can happen, where the same myth can lead to two different perspectives on what it was really about. But that's also the beauty of mythology, because just like fire, two people looking into the same thing can take something vastly different away from it. And so now that that's out of the way, I want to talk a little bit about the titans of Greek mythology. The Titans were an immortal race that ruled before the Olympian gods, and the most powerful Titan of them all was Cronus. And he gained this power by castrating his own father Uranus with a sickle and taking it from him. But that power came with a curse, and the curse was that Cronus knew that one day he would have a child that would overthrow him, just like he overthrew his own father. This bothered Cronus so much that it became an obsession, and he tried to find a way out of falling into this fate. When he found out that his wife Rhea was pregnant, he waited for her to give birth, and he took his infant child and consumed it whole. This action of Cronus devouring his own child is one of the most famous scenes ever depicted in all of Greek mythology. Two of the most famous paintings are by Peter Paul Rubens and Francisco Goya, and in both of them, Cronus looks absolutely deranged as he's devouring his child. And Cronus didn't just do this once. He did this five separate times. Much to the horror of Rhea and his mother, Gaia, the Earth. So much so that they conspired together to save the sixth child, 
who would become Zeus from the same fate as his brothers and sisters. This time, when Rhea gave birth, she fed Cronus a stone because now he was so consumed with power he didn't even notice the difference. And Zeus was then hidden away to grow stronger in the hopes that one day he would overthrow Cronus. But Zeus would not be able to do it alone. Cronus had become so powerful that if all of the other titans ganged up together to try and overthrow Cronus, Cronus would still win. Even more, it was very unlikely that any of the titans would ever turn on Cronus. So Zeus needed some allies, and the most natural ones were already in Cronus's stomach. But they were still alive. Because Cronus and Rhea were immortal, so were their children, and all of them were now full-grown and trapped in Cronus's stomach, and no way to get out. So a plan was devised, where Cronus was going to be fed something that would make him throw up, and therefore all of Zeus's brothers and sisters, some of the most famous gods of the Greek pantheon, would then join his side. The plan worked, the brothers and sisters quickly joined sides with Zeus, and the result was the most powerful war that ever happened in Greek mythology. This war is known as the Titanomachy, and it was Zeus and the gods versus Cronus and the Titans. And nearly all of the Titans joined Cronus in this war. One of them is known as Iapetus, who was the guardian of the West and one of Cronus's brothers. He had been loyal to Cronus ever since the start, and even helped hold Uranus down as Cronus was castrating him. Iapetus also had some powerful sons. One of them, named Menetius, whose name literally translates to doomed might, was the titan of rashness and violent rage. You can kind of picture him as someone who was strong and powerful and ready to fight, but wasn't always the smartest. Menetius even had a stronger brother named Atlas, who was so powerful that no other titan could match him other than Cronus. Therefore, Atlas, Menetius, Iapetus all joined Cronus in fighting in the Titanomachy. But we know that the Titans did not win, and Zeus had to punish each of them when they lost the war. Menetius was the first to go when he was struck with Zeus's first thunderbolt ever, basically wiping him out of existence. Menetius is never written about again after Zeus strikes him with his first thunderbolt, and that was Zeus's most famous weapon. Atlas got the cruel and unusual punishment of having to hold the earth separate from the sky, and Iapetus and Cronus were thrown into Tartarus, which is exactly where Cronus threw all of his enemies when he was in charge. 
But not all of Eaptus' sons joined Cronus' side in the war. He had a pair of twins, Prometheus, who was the titan of foresight, and Epimetheus, who was the titan of hindsight, who joined Zeus due to Prometheus' ability to see into the future on who would win the war. Even though Prometheus tried to convince the rest of his family, it was only his twin brother who believed him, and so those were the only two spared of the terrible fates of the rest of the family. Foresight was a valuable ability in Greek mythology that not all of the gods had. For example, Apollo battled the serpent Python to take control of the Oracle of Delphi, where Sibyls made mysterious predictions about the future that often came true. This is because ancient Greeks believed in the concept of fate, and so if something was predicted to come true, they believed that it would eventually happen one way or another. And so by Apollo taking possession of the Oracle of Delphi, he was able to have something that would be able to take a look into the future, even if he himself didn't have the ability. But Prometheus naturally had this ability, and Zeus rewarded Prometheus and Epimetheus for making that unpopular decision with the rest of the Titans to join his side by giving them a special task. He asked the twins to repopulate the entire Earth after it was destroyed by the Titanomachy with creatures of their choosing. So, Prometheus and Epimetheus were given a certain amount of characteristics like claws and talons, teeth, muscles, camouflage, wings, fins, paws, fur, and they used them to create creatures as they saw fit. Prometheus dove right into one very special creature. For him, he wanted to make it in the likeness of the gods, a beautiful creature. And so he took his time sculpting it to make it perfect. And into this creature, he breathed his special gift of foresight. But Epimetheus, since he was the titan of hindsight, he just threw together all of the different pieces and parts without too much thought. And it is Epimetheus's creation that was nearly every other species on the planet. But when Prometheus reached to try and give his special creature, humans, the characteristics that were supposed to be shared between them, he realized nearly none were left. And so Prometheus took what he could, which was a little bit of muscle, a little bit of fur, he put them onto his creation and he set him off onto the earth. But humans were a truly pathetic species. They were too slow to catch food, and they were too weak to ward off or hide from predators, not able to camouflage themselves. And they were chilly at night, not having enough fur to keep them warm. And so Prometheus knew that he had to do something to help them. And in order to help them, he thought the only thing that he could do was to give them the gift of fire. But fire 
It was like meteor strikes or floods or lightning or earthquakes. These were things that were strictly in the realm of the gods, not of the mortals. No creature could control fire, and that's exactly the way Zeus wanted it. But Prometheus snuck up to Mount Olympus, stole some fire from the sacred hearth, put it in a stalk, and ran down Mount Olympus to give to humans and teach them how to make it for themselves. There is a famous painting called Prometheus Brings Fire by Heinrich Fuger, where Prometheus stands brilliant astride a weak human laying on the ground in the darkness and shadows, about to teach them how to use something that was going to change their life. Once Prometheus taught humans how to make fire, humans taught it to each other, and shortly, humans all around the world began starting fires, and it did not take long for Zeus to be able to notice that these fires were being made. And at first, he was angry as he looked down and saw that someone had broken this sacred rule of not giving fire to the mortals. But then he smelled the smoke of the fires, and he could tell that the humans were doing something special for him. They were giving him sacrifices of animals. He could smell it, and it scented his nectar and ambrosia, the food of the gods, and this calmed his rage. So much so that when he even found out it was Prometheus who had did this, he did not retaliate against Prometheus. He enjoyed the sacrifices that the humans were giving, and so everyone made out better. But Prometheus still was not happy. He saw that humans were wasting huge amounts of the animals that they could be using to strengthen themselves and to make themselves better creatures. And so once again, he went back down to the earth and he spoke to the humans. He told them to collect all of the animals that they had that they were ready to sacrifice and to create two different piles. One pile would be a pile of the things that were worthless, such as the bones and the entrails. But over this pile, Prometheus instructed them to put a nice snow-white layer of fat, something that the gods loved to scent their nectar and ambrosia with. In the other pile, though, were all the best meats. And over the best meats, Prometheus instructed the humans to put a thin layer of bones and sinew and other useless animal parts so it would look like the worst pile. And then Prometheus suggested to Zeus that he should pick a pile so that one could be always for the gods and that the other could always be for the humans. And Zeus, not believing that the humans would have the ability to trick him after all, sacrificing for him so much meat, he agreed to this and quickly chose the pile that looked better, covered in snow-white fat, but underneath was just a bunch of useless animal parts. And so when they lit this pile for the sacrifice, and Zeus found out that he had been tricked, and that it was the other pile that had all of the best meats, he flew into a rage that was not going to be calmed down this time. And he vowed revenge not just on Prometheus, but on his human creation as well. Before Zeus was able to get to Prometheus, though, he went to his brother Epimetheus and warned him 
never to take a gift from Zeus because he would want to retaliate after what he had just did to him. Epimetheus agreed, and it wasn't long before Prometheus was captured and taken up to some of the highest mountains, the Caucasus Mountains, and chained to the rocks there, and was forced to freeze up in the lonely mountains by himself. And from there, every day, an eagle would fly down and land on him, sticking his talons into his skin and digging into his stomach to grab his liver and pull it out, forcing Prometheus into tons of pain. And because Prometheus was immortal, each night his liver would grow back, and each day the eagle would return to rip it out and devour it again. This is how Prometheus lived for generations. And there was no way Prometheus did not see this coming. Prometheus had the gift of foresight. He knew what was going to come to him for helping humans. And in another famous painting by Peter Paul Rubens called Prometheus Bound, you can see this eagle tearing apart Prometheus's liver, while down at the bottom of the mountains you can see a fire raging, humans living their best life while Prometheus struggled. It wasn't until many generations later that Heracles, or Hercules, came and destroyed Prometheus's bonds to return the kindness and show thanks for what Prometheus had done for humans. And it showed that humans were willing to give back to those that gave to them. But Zeus had a much more sinister plan for the human race. Zeus directed Hephaestus to create an automaton whose beauty was only rivaled by that of Aphrodite. And Aphrodite breathed life into her, and each of the gods gave her a gift that made her more and more irresistible. The final quality was given by Zeus, and that was the quality of insatiable curiosity. And so this automaton, this creature who seemed just as divine as all the rest of the gods, was named Pandora and was brought to Epimetheus by Hermes. And Hermes told Epimetheus that this was a gift from Zeus in his thanks to him and that he wanted Epimetheus to marry this beautiful wife. Epimetheus agreed, and so Zeus also gave Pandora a final gift and that was a jar or a box that she was told to never open, something that he knew, with her insatiable curiosity, she would not be able to avoid. And so it wasn't long before Pandora actually opened the box, and out of it flew all of the miseries of humankind, miseries that none of the other species on Earth truly feel like us such as drudgery, spite, gossip, lies, envy, distrust, despair, they all came racing out of the box and started stinging and infecting the whole human race, hardening us, forcing us to adapt to a more difficult and cynical way of life that we didn't have to live with before. So that raises some questions. What is it about fire that connects it to the idea of foresight and tricking the gods and misery and in order to answer that i look towards a film called 
quest for fire. The tribe who possessed fire possessed life. The connection between fire and foresight should seem pretty obvious as it would take a prescient individual to see the benefit of trying to control something that was so dangerous and deadly. In fact, scientists today still have difficulty determining when human ancestors first were able to control fire. There's a pretty big gap here, somewhere between 300,000 and 1.5 million years ago. And the reason this gap is so big is because fire can pretty easily be covered up shortly after it happened. And even if some ancient signs of a fire exist, it's very difficult to determine whether a human tended to it or not. But the fact remains that there could be over a million years of fire usage before Homo sapiens even evolved into existence. And by this point, fire would have actually have been written into our DNA. So, the story of Prometheus from Greek mythology, he likely didn't create Homo sapiens, but some kind of Homo sapien ancestor, such as Homo erectus who originally were able to control fire. And it only would have been when Epimetheus and Pandora released the miseries onto them that Homo sapiens would have evolved into existence. But why would misery and fire and the tricking of the gods all be associated with our species as Homo sapiens? And I think the answer has a lot to do with the civilization that we have built because of our control of fire. Every aspect of our civilization is built upon fire, and it has made us be able to take control of our own destiny in a way that no other species on the planet is able to do. They still have to deal with the elements while we create our own insulated environments with a climate that suits us rather than the climate that the gods have given us. And in this way, we have tricked the gods. But at the same time, we also have invited miseries upon ourselves, and it's the tedium and the drudgery of living in a complex civilization that we all often know about and talk about, that only we, as the only civilized species on the planet, have to deal with. It's also interesting to imagine humans' relationship to fire before any of the civilization came around, though. And I feel like the film that has best made the attempt is the 1981 film Quest for Fire, featuring Everett McGill, Ron Perlman, and Ray Dong Chong. It's really a revolutionary film because throughout the whole thing there's no speaking or at least no speaking that we would understand that takes place within it and it's all the more impressive that it was made during a time before cgi was made 
The only language that we can understand is the text in the beginning that sets up the scene for us, telling us that this takes place about 80,000 years ago, and that it follows a group of Neanderthals. And the final thing it tells us is that the tribe who possessed fire possessed life. The opening scene is one of a group of Neanderthals resting and sleeping peacefully around a giant fire, knowing that they're protected from the elements because they're right in the mouth of a cave that's located not far from a creek where they can get water and bathe. As they sleep around the fire, you can tell that they're well-fed because they're able to cook their food. They show some wolves off in the woods nearby who won't come near because the fire's so large, and they're able to stay safe and warm around this fire. However, another group of hominids that's neither Neanderthal or Homo sapiens is ready to attack them. And as they do, the Neanderthals have to battle to keep their space and to protect their fire. But meanwhile, in the back of the cave, is a little bit of an eccentric Neanderthal who keeps a backup fire that's portable just for this sort of circumstance. He knows that his tribe is in danger, and so he leaves out of a secret back entrance from the cave and tries to make his way to a meetup point where the rest of the survivors from the battle are. When he discovers them, even though the tribe had lost the battle, he still has the fire. And in his excitement to try and cross a cold, damp swamp to try and meet his tribe, he gets so excited that he finds himself buried to his chest in water, having to hold the fire over his head out of fear that it's going to go out. Other members of the tribe quickly run out to meet him, grab the fire, and bring it back, but in the resulting chaos, the fire goes out. And the sadness and the darkness associated with that moment is truly palatable. The group selects three of their best to try and find more fire because they didn't know how to make it for themselves in the hopes that they could bring it back and they could start themselves anew. So the whole movie is about the trip for these three Neanderthals seeking fire, and one of them actually runs into contact with a Homo sapiens civilization where they have structures that they've built and they live in, and they not only can control fire, but this Neanderthal who gets welcomed into their civilization realizes that they have the ability to make fire. This special ability to make fire is something that had a true impact on the Neanderthal as he watched it happen in real time. He realized that out of nothing, fire could be made. And even though the humans give him some fire to take back to his people, he realized what he had seen was nothing less than a miracle. During his time with the Homo sapiens, one of the women there actually fell in love with him and returned with the three Neanderthals to go back to his tribe. This relationship between Homo sapiens and Neanderthals is actually genetically proven, as almost all humans have some Neanderthal DNA in their body. But just like the first time that they met up together, the fire goes out, and once again, the tribe has no fire. 
But the Neanderthal who watched the fire be made tried to start a fire himself by getting all the pieces of fire together and trying to start it, but to no avail. Even though he witnessed the fire being created, he did not have the skill to do so. It was only the woman, Homo sapien, that was brought back with them that was able to take over and start the fire for the group, once again giving them the power of light, life, warmth, and the ability to cook food and ward predators away. And in this way, we truly do see the gifts of Prometheus in the human's ability to control fire. And so that brings me into trying to understand the human connection to fire in a little bit more scientific terms. Who captured who? While Quest for Fire took place only about 80,000 years ago, hominins, which are human-like species, have likely depended on fire, like I said, for over a million years. And no one makes this case better than Richard Wrangham. He is a professor of biological anthropology at Harvard, and he wrote the book Catching Fire, how cooking made us human. And a lot of what I'm about to share with you comes from the research done by Wrangham. But in order to understand this, we have to understand our whole genus a little bit better, right? We are Homo sapiens, and there are other species that are out there that had shared our genus Homo but are no longer with us today, all right? It's kind of a shame that we don't have this because with a lot of other species like, you know, the grizzly bear and the polar bear or dogs and wolves, these are different species that share the same genus. And so when they look at each other, they can see all their similarities. But I think something has been lost when Neanderthals, who were the last Homo species to exist alongside of us, when they died out, as humans, we started to develop a belief that we were special and different from the rest of the animal kingdom. And what archaeological studies have found is that this is not really the case. So, for example... Humans have existed on Earth for about the last 200,000 years. But Neanderthals, all right, or Homo neanderthalensis, have been around for about twice that long, about 400,000 years. And there's a misconception among people that Neanderthals were very ape-like, because when we see accurate representations of them, they're more brawny, they're hairy, they have a heavier brow than humans, they have a wider face, a bigger nose, their cheekbones are more angular, and that makes them seem more primitive to us. But they share more in common with us than we often feel comfortable admitting, not least of which is the fact that we share some DNA. We were so closely related that in our past, our ancestors interbred. 
But more than that, Neanderthals also had clothing, tools, shelters, and they could control fire just like us. In fact, it's more than likely that they were able to make it themselves. But there are even older members of our genus out there, like Homo erectus. And compared to the Neanderthals, Homo erectus looked far more ape-like. Because they had much wider noses, their lips and skull took on a more ape-like shape, and they were also much bigger, six feet tall. And while today humans are often around six feet tall, this is a relatively recent development. Humans used to be a lot shorter, and so are Neanderthals, so Homo erectus would have towered over both of us. But the most amazing aspect about Homo erectus was that they existed for nine times longer than humans, or about one and a half million years. And it's likely that Neanderthals ran into them out in the wild of the world, but it seems that they went extinct before humans developed, so it's unlikely that humans were able to mix with them. But the thing about Homo erectus is that they also used tools and fire, something for a long time our species believed is what made us special. They used it for over a million years. In fact, Wrangham puts forth that the creation of stone tools by Homo erectus was a direct result of that species' relationship to fire. But even Homo erectus isn't the original toolmakers. For that, we have to go even further back in our genus to one of the earliest members of it. And this is Homo habilis. And Homo habilis is so ancient that compared to Homo erectus, it truly does look like an ape. It has a skull that is much more aligned with an ape. And it has a jawbone like that. And they were covered in hair as well. And Homo habilis dates as far back as 2.4 million years ago. This far back in time, Homo sapiens, our own species, wouldn't evolve into existence for over 2 million years. But Homo habilis were tool makers. And what Wrangham tries to explain is how our genus went from a creature like Homo habilis to a tool-making, fire-making species like Homo erectus. And so Wrangham focuses on some of the big changes that must have happened between Homo habilis around 2.4 million years ago and Homo erectus, which started showing up somewhere around 2 million years ago. Because Homo habilis and Homo erectus had some noticeable differences. Homo habilis, for example, had a smaller brain than Homo erectus, but bigger teeth and a bigger intestinal tract. And Homo habilis had a very small range in which it was around, and it lived mostly in the woodlands, just like all other primates of the time. And it ate hard fruits and nuts, and it used its opposable thumbs to climb through the trees, and even sleep in the trees in order to protect themselves from the predators on the ground. But Homo erectus had a larger brain, and smaller teeth, and a smaller intestinal tract. 
And it had a very different form of diet that did not depend on the same hard fruits and nuts that any woodland primate would have depended on. It must have been pushed out of the woodlands, and it changed its diet to raw grasses, sedges, and most surprisingly of all, meat. So this new species should have been on a path to extinction because it wasn't in the habitat that it was evolved to survive in. And yet, Homo erectus had a range that far surpassed that of Homo habilis. Not only did it spread out throughout Africa, but it pushed out into the continents of Europe and Asia as well. And we know that it had one of the longest, if not the longest, lifespans of all hominins. So what was it that Homo erectus could have had that would have made it so successful in so many different biomes when it was evolved just to live in the woodlands? And Rangam points to the fairly obvious answer. It must have depended on fire. Because having a fire to sleep around on the ground would have protected it against the predators which it would have so easily been prey to. And... Because they had the fire to protect them, Homo erectus would have been able to sleep more deeply and for less amount of time. And that actually even still remains true to this day. Humans sleep less than any other primate, but they also sleep more deeply. And it only makes sense that we would have gotten this ability through our ancestors that first became dependent on fire and used it to protect them when they slept. This also gave more waking hours to do things and get things done. And then Rangam points out an obvious but not often reflected upon fact that humans are the only species today that need their food cooked. All other primate species eat only raw or even rotting food and they don't get sick. And while this is pretty common sense, we don't really usually question why that is. But the reality is, is that humans have developed a digestive tract that protects it against toxins in cooked food, whereas other primates have digestive systems that better protect them against the dangers of raw food. And it's this difference in digestion that really sets humans apart. And it must have been Homo erectus as well, because Homo erectus's digestive system was smaller than that of Homo habilis. Because today, humans have a digestive tract that is 60% smaller than the average primate, but it can absorb over 90% of the cooked nutrients. A raw digestive tract of other primates is just not as efficient. Rangham also studied groups of people who eat raw diets and found that not only are these people usually always hungry, but their digestive tract absorbs about 20-40% to 40 less nutrients than the same food if it were cooked. So cooking drastically increases digestibility, particularly in humans. So Homo erectus having smaller teeth and a smaller digestive tract insinuates that it must have already caught on to the fact that it was depending on cooked food a lot more than previous generations of hominins. 
And this would have provided them with a lot more energy. And because other primates spend a lot of their day digesting their raw food diets, Homo erectus and humans don't need to do that because most of our digestion takes place even before it enters our mouth. And so since we spend less time digesting, we have more time to do other things and a lot more energy to do them with especially when it's coupled around having to sleep less and more deeply. It's no wonder why Homo erectus was the first hominin species to be able to run long distances, something that Neanderthals and humans also were able to do. And this had all sorts of unintended consequences as well. Because Homo erectus did not need to put so much energy into creating a longer digestive tract, it was those who were born with more brain power and a smaller digestive tract that got the evolutionary advantage in Homo erectus. And Rangum even claims that the shrinking of our digestive system is directly proportional to the amount of brain power growth that we've had since. Rangham even makes further cultural connections to our association with fire, and he suggests that our entire genus, all hominins, not just Homo sapiens, are characterized by our division of labor, specifically by sex where men were the hunters and women were the gatherers, and that is what brought us with our modern diet of cooked meat and vegetables. Rangham even says that this is what began the foundations for human culture as we know it, and that women tended to share their food almost exclusively with a preferred man in close relationships such as her family. And then he even goes as far as to say that this could have been the basis for pair bonds and the foundations for the modern concept of marriage. He points out that in 98% of cultures around the world, women do the cooking, and that even the term lady derives from the word for bread kneader. And while all of this might be a little speculative by Rangham, it's undoubtedly true that all of a sudden, our ancestors depended entirely on fire and had to shift their entire way of living because of it. So then it was fire. Not Epimetheus, who may be the reason why we have so little hair. Most mammals, especially land mammals, have a lot of hair, and any mammal that lives in a cold climate can survive an entire frigid winter without any external sources of heat. Yet if you put a naked human being out into sub-zero temperatures in winter, it would be lucky for them to be able to survive even just a day. So we have actually become totally dependent on fire because with our dependence on fire, we gave up the ability to warm ourselves and even to feed ourselves and even to sleep without its protection. Fire has made us more docile and domesticated, but it gave us something back in return. And this must be the gift of Prometheus. It gave us greater brain power and all the ideas that are associated with that. It gave us our gift of foresight, our ability to plan for things and in order to make things and use our brain to come up with truly novel solutions to a lot of ideas. It gave us the ability to build our entire civilization. Our species has become entirely dependent on fire. 
And it made us forget and look at those ancestors of ours who lived entirely in the trees on raw food and had them all of a sudden become foreign to us, despite us coming from them. Because never again would we be able to live without fire. Rebuilding Humanity with Fire So, according to Rangham, humans, as in Homo sapiens, came into existence already knowing how to create stone tools, how to start a fire, how to build shelters, and how to divide labor amongst each other. Our species has never depended on raw food alone or lived solely in the forests. All of those advancements, leaving the forest, learning how to start a fire, learning how to cook food, creating stone tools and building shelters, all of those accomplishments were not done by Homo sapiens. They were done by an ancestor of us. And that kind of humbles us a little bit. Because sometimes we like to think of ourselves as a species that is so separate and special from the rest of the world. And yet, learning about all of this gives us a direct path backwards into our relationship with the natural world. It was human ancestors that made these monumental discoveries, and not us. But, there are a lot of gaps that remain in the record and they leave room for a lot of questions. For example, did hand tools come before the control of fire, or was it the other way around? We know that Homo habilis used tools, but they lived far outside of the range of even the furthest extent of when hominins first controlled fire. But even that range given by scientists is another reason to bring up some questions. The earliest unequivocal evidence of fire being used is around 300,000 to 400,000 years ago. But the furthest estimates that are out there of when hominins first controlled fire is around 1.8 million years ago. That's about a million and a half years of wiggle room of when hominins first learned to control fire. So, with this type of information in dispute, it's okay to question or even doubt Rangham's exact sequence of events or his conclusions. But at the same time, Rangham does have a lot of compelling arguments that just appeal to logic. For example, how else could our ancestors' brains have gotten so big if it wasn't that energy boost that came from a cooked diet? A change in diet from nuts and fruit to raw meat and grasses really shouldn't have been enough. And for what other reason would our ancestors have had smaller teeth and a smaller intestinal tract if they didn't depend on cooked food just like we do today? The reason why we can't digest uncooked food as well as other primates is because our intestines are too short 
and it doesn't have enough time to pull all the nutrients out before it's excreted. So that alone is a huge sign that tells us Homo erectus likely depended regularly on fire. And how else would Homo erectus would have been able to travel such far distances and run such long distances if they didn't have some type of energy boost? Shouldn't they have been spending a lot of their free time digesting their raw food like other primates? So in these ways, Rangum does make a lot of sense. And I like to even think a little bit more creatively. I mean, isn't it possible that Homo habilis, which existed before Homo erectus, couldn't they have had some kind of opportunistic relationship with fire 2.4 million years ago that there would be no way for scientists to know for sure? For example, might they have recognized that when there's a forest fire, if they were able to capture some of that fire and use it to cook some food occasionally until it went out, wouldn't that have given them just enough knowledge to know that there was a little bit of an energy boost by eating food that was cooked already? Or could they have gone through after a forest fire and ate the dead charred animals that weren't able to escape? And what if there was a special subsect of Homo habilis, for example, that might have dedicated all their time to trying to capture, control, and protect fire to the point that they became dependent on it? Could this have been how Homo erectus evolved to begin with? We can't know for sure. But with our entire genus, Homo, so dependent on fire or even having some kind of possible working relationship with it, it would seem to make better sense to change our genus name from Homo, which means man, to Ignis, which means fire as all Homo species have had that kind of a relationship with fire. And then this makes me also think about how humans and Neanderthals are kind of like this late stage of this evolved fire people, because our species both came into existence already learning and knowing how to use and interact with fire. So today, we take its daily benefits for granted, and we can sometimes forget how intertwined we have become with fire. We have to remember that it wasn't our species that ever had a choice in the matter. We did not make the proverbial deal with the devil. It was our ancestors who did that for us. They traded off the independence that every other species on this planet has from fire, and they exchanged it for a total dependence on fire. Now, most people would be quick to say that we're better off for it, and that may well be true, but there is something to be said about the fact that we do require it to survive now, whereas no other species on this planet does. And bit by bit, we have insulated ourselves further from the natural world. We created an artificial environment run by fire until we almost no longer directly interact with the natural world at all. And in this sense, we truly did trick the gods. Well, at least for now. And this is also how the miseries fit in. 
because we have that burden of being so self-aware about our troubles that it does separate us from every other species on the planet. And yet, fire lurks in every corner of our civilization today. Everything from forging, to burning, to cooking, to warming, to cleaning, fire is at the root of all of our successes. And if fire ever did create a species, it would look exactly like the Promethean humans. And if that's the case, it does beg the question of whether we control fire, or has fire learned to control us? After all, only one of us are dependent on the other. Thank you for listening to this episode of No Character Limit. Every episode, the sources that I used are located in the description if you would like to check them out. In addition, please consider liking, rating, and reviewing if you enjoyed this podcast as each one goes to help further the reach of this podcast for new people to hear. Each episode requires hours in research, writing, recording, and editing. So if you feel that what you just heard is worth a donation of any size, please go to the description and follow the links for that. Each donation comes with a free PDF copy of a writing piece of your choice, no matter the size of your donation, and you get a lot of extra features with that, including a lot of the artwork and graphs and pictures, as well as the descriptions that I don't include in the podcast. If you would like updates for new episodes, you can follow No Character Limit at mastodon.world. And finally, if you have a question, comment, or even a correction, please feel free to reach out at nocharacterlimit at protonmail.com. Thank you again for listening.